So is there anybody like me willing to admit you have a project sitting at home that you haven't finished? Although I can probably outdo you. I have projects older than most of you in this room that I haven't finished. My daughter's Christmas stocking. She'll be 25 this year. Probably not going to happen. The not, you know, the new decorative knobs I bought, the paint and everything. And what we're going to be talking about tonight is the cost of discipleship and following through on commitment. But to get your attention, first of all, I have this confession and example. So last night I was a thousand percent enthusiastic that I wanted chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> I wanted chocolate chip cookies so bad. So I mixed up the batter. And I made enough chocolate chip cookies to eat last night. And I have all this batter left and absolutely no enthusiasm for making any more chocolate chip cookies. And we're going away tomorrow. Does anybody want to turn my lack of commitment into <laughs> their treasure? And this is how it works. We are in the Gospel of Luke as we begin to look at um, commitment or lack thereof. And uh, Luke chapter 9 in particular, we're skipping a little bit, if any of you are type A and following along. Um, Jesse really wanted to do a particular passage that he'll do next week because this week he is in Chicago at Joshua Peebles' wedding. If any of you know who Joshua is, he used to be on staff here. So I really do feel like I'm talking to family. Sorry my back's to you, but that's, that's life, guys. Gross, Sam. Get that, Yeah. Awkward. (laughs) So far in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen Jesus' miraculous birth. What we've seen is a lot of confusion. Um, People don't know what to make of him. You know, in hindsight, we understand who Jesus is, sort of. In the day, a lot of confusion. Was he a political liberator? Was he going to free them from the Roman Empire that was... Um, oppressing the nation of Israel? Was he a messenger? Was he a prophet? A lot of people thought he was like Elijah. Um, was he John the Baptist reincarnated? Who was, who was this man? And these miracles, these miracles, were they for real? Were they magic? Was he some kind of charlatan? Um, maybe even he was empowered by the devil. What do we make of these miracles? Um, popularity. There were people that loved him and chased after him because they wanted to see some of those miracles and that miraculous power. Others particularly members of the religious establishment, couldn't stand the fact that he seemed to be upending a lot of their traditions and a lot of their teachings. It was so confusing because there were times when Jesus seemed to follow the letter of the Old Testament law, which was really the only Bible he had to follow at that point in his life. And at other times, he said outrageous things like, love your enemies to an occupied nation. And he said things like, the Gentiles will be saved. That literally almost got him killed the first time he said that in Nazareth, when they sort of came up on him like a crowd to get him to the edge of the cliff. And then the Gospels just says he walked through the crowd and walked away. But they were set to kill him for being willing to include Gentiles in salvation. So, so much confusion over who Jesus was. Like Mike said last week, Even though we're only in chapter 9 out of about 24 in the Gospel of Luke, we're only about six months away from Jesus' death. He's had two-plus years of public ministry. 
during which time he got known, and then he had this great year that he was really, really popular, and now people are beginning to realize the cost, what this guy's really about. And he's not backing down, and he's not playing like a team member with the religious establishment or the occupying forces, and a lot of opposition is beginning to develop. And so we're coming to this decision point, this turning point, right in this particular passage. If you were to read through the Gospel of Luke as a literary thing, you would see a huge conviction and turning right here, right about chapter 9, chapter verses 51 or so, where it says Jesus set his eyes toward Jerusalem. And this whole idea of being committed, there are some things you either are or you aren't. Like, either you are pregnant or you're not. You're never sort of pregnant. Marriage, too. You can try to hide the ring or act otherwise, but you're either married or you're not. But then it gets a little bit murky after that. Um, I had an occasion once to begin premarital counseling for a couple I didn't really know. And so chit-chat, chit-chat. And one of the first questions I asked them was, are you formally engaged? And one said yes, and one said no. And I thought, oh, this is going to go well. <laughs> and most of the first session was spent discussing that question and how to have a fair fight. But anyhow, so commitment. Commitment is a big thing. And this idea of following Jesus with full-hearted commitment, um, we will see here Jesus fully committed to the will of the Father and we're going to see different stories of the disciples really messing up. And it's a good question to ask ourselves. If you were writing a book, like Luke was, to tell the story of your Lord and Savior, so that for all times and eternity, people could read this and come to faith, why in the world would you include stories of such screw-ups? We'll ask that at the end. But let's begin to look at the passage. Luke 9, 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. We'll keep going. We'll read it through. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay, no place to lay his head. He, Jesus, said to another man, Follow me. And he replied, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus, ever so sympathetic, said, Let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but... First, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is where we, we think like Mike asked last year, who is this Jesus and what did you do with the sweet cuddly baby? What is wrong with Jesus? I mean, he just reminds me that it's just strong arming and bulldozing his way through. And his replies are not only cryptic, they're almost downright mean. 
what the heck, Jesus? So let's look into this. Let's give God the benefit of the doubt for being God and look into this. I appreciate right from the beginning that Luke says that as Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, which was the city where he would be crucified and buried, Luke's perspective isn't, Jesus is going to Jerusalem and it's all going to go wrong. Already, as the time came for him to be taken up to heaven, so let's go into this with a perspective of victory, folks. Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. If you know anything of the geography of Israel, if you can just picture the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, a little bit north of the Dead Sea, you'll have Israel. No, you'll have Jerusalem. And so Jesus is up in the Galilee area. The fastest way to get to Jerusalem is just go straight, right through Samaria. The Samaritans were a group, half-breeds, basically, when earlier occupying armies, the Assyrians in particular, came in and intermarried, to put it politely, with the Israelites. The result was a half-breed group, and because they were despised by purebred Jews, the gaps grew wider and wider and wider, to the point where the Samaritans had their own version of scripture, their own way of worship, their own laws, and the hatred The ethnic hatred played off the religious hatred. The religious hatred played off the ethnic hatred. And most Jews did not get from Galilee to Jerusalem by walking straight south through Samaria. Most of them took an extra 50, 60 miles to go around. Jesus is set for Jerusalem. He knows his destiny. He knows salvation includes all people. And he's not going to get a little thing like racial or or religious or ethnic Hatred bother him, so he sets off. He sends messengers ahead because when you're traveling back then in a group like they would have been, you can't just check into the Hilton and run out to Smashburger to get a dinner. You've got to depend on the hospitality of the people in the village you wind up with. And this was a big deal in those days. If someone showed up, you gave them a bed, you gave them some food because it would be you traveling the next time. And so for James and John to be rejected as these scouts, so to put it, and to be told by the people, we're not offering nothing to you Jews, was embarrassing, at least, and made them angry, I'm sure. Must have been very embarrassing to go back to Jesus and say, "Um, we couldn't find anything. And James and John, two of the disciples who had been at the transfiguration, seeing the glory of the Lord and the appearance of Moses and Elijah, who were just astounded at that point. James and John, two of the disciples who couldn't cast the demon out of the boy that we spoke about last week, who had demon possession and epilepsy, all of a sudden find their power. And what are they going to use it for? They're going to rain down fire from heaven and destroy that village. Now, I'm sure they postured themselves as saying, well, you know, we're just defending Jesus' honor here because it's dishonorable to tell the rabbi he's not welcome. But the thing is, Jesus says no, because if you want to honor Jesus, you act like Jesus. And Jesus has come in peace, with patience, with grace, with forgiveness, with a message 
not with fire from heaven. And it's such a simple little thing. It's as if Luke, um, maybe he told the story first of all to say, <laughs> I didn't do that. That was James and John. <laughs> Losers, I'm Luke. I write gospels. But all he, all he says is, Jesus rebuked them. He doesn't embarrass them any further with the length of the rebuke that they were given. In very inappropriate use of the power, Jesus had told them, if you're rejected in a village, when you go out, you shake the dust off your feet. You don't turn them to dust. But you know, this, the impulsiveness of these disciples in all the stories we look at tonight, just amazing ways that they didn't get it. I'm sure Jesus went to Jerusalem with a flat forehead from just palming it so often at the thickness of the disciples. But to, to follow Jesus and to honor Jesus and to defend the honor of Jesus is to act as Jesus. That does not allow revenge. That does not allow taking it out on those who reject you. The stories ramp up. Let's look at the next one. Oh, yeah, I did want to I did want to mention that verse. Um, next one, next slide. It's reminiscent of the of what Jesus had said earlier. Kathy preached on this passage. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? and let you lose or forfeit their very self. Same chapter. <laughs> not that long ago, and the disciples were not getting it. Next. As they were walking along, a man came to him, and I picture this man glumping up all enthusiastic. I will go wherever, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus, in these instances, he said no to the disciples. No, no fire. It's like you might say to your two-year-old, no, don't touch, no. But to these wannabe disciples, he's more cryptic. He's giving them, giving them opportunity maybe to redeem their own enthusiasm into actual commitment. But what we'll see, we'll see what happens. He says to this first man who is all enthusiastic, foxes have dens and birds have nests. The son of man has no place to lay his head. I picture this guy seeing the crowds, hearing about Jesus' popularity, hearing about the miracles, he wants to cash in without necessarily committing. I want to be a groupie. I will go wherever you go. Jesus, knowing his thoughts, said, well, well let's, let's talk about this. Let me tell you what it's really like. It's not a life of luxury. It's not five-star hotels. It's not great popularity. I don't even have a place to lay my head. I don't even get treated as well as nature around me. Disciples cannot expect comfort. Disciples cannot expect a ton of security. We can expect in following Jesus that we will be dispossessed. We will be disliked. There's a verse, and I think it's coming up next, yeah, that I really appreciate. This is um, Moses speaking to the Israelites way back when they were leaving Egypt. And Peter later um, uses the same verses to talk to early Christians who were kind of shocked at the fact that they were being persecuted and literally driven from their homes. 
He said, God says, you have sel- yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So three promises there given first to Moses, repeated to the early church, treasured possession, kingdom of priest and holy nation. Now, I do not speak or study Hebrew, but I read books that study Hebrew. And I can tell you that that term, treasured possession, in Hebrew also carries the connotation of being a little pocket full of jewels, hence the picture. And the idea back in days when currency didn't mean much or you couldn't travel too far without the currency changing, a little pocket full of jewels was a very, very handy thing to have for your own well-being. And two remarkable things here. God is calling his children treasured possessions, jewels. We are not coal, we are diamonds in God's eyes. And his intention for us is to be portable, movable, able to be used in his kingdom where he needs, when he wants, not to be settled into religious conventions or national comforts and security. Um, And he's warning this fellow who says, I'll follow you anywhere. That to follow Jesus as a true disciple, fully sold out, means to stay on edge, always ready, always willing to see where God will move you next, figuratively or literally. Where does God need me? What does he need me to do? What does he need me to stop doing in order to free myself up? I think that was his message in cryptic answer number one. Um, And we understand this even in the verses that give rise to our church and the ethos we have here. So I thought I'd put them up just as a reminder. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. And this is the Apostle Paul talking in the city of Corinth, a city that welcomed him, but had a lot more respect for the more polished, accomplished, successful preachers who came in justifying their lifestyle without change and genuine commitment to the Lord. This, Paul says, is genuine discipleship. It didn't take the church long to figure that out. Then to the next two, Jesus himself said to another man, follow me. And the man replied, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus, obviously not trained as a counselor, let the dead bury their own dead. Oh, harsh. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Well, what might be going on here? Well, it's possible. We can't really tell from... It's a possibility from the grammar that the guy's father wasn't actually dead yet. You know, maybe he had some kind of a serious, maybe even terminal illness, and the guy is stalling. And it sounds like a perfectly legit excuse, right? My father's going to die. Well, except Jesus has his face set toward Jerusalem now, and he is losing patience 
with those who will not follow wholeheartedly, full commitment, single-minded, now. And it seems so harsh, though, because let's think about it. Back then in the day, you couldn't preserve the body. You pretty much buried it the day the person died. Seriously, Jesus, the guy can't have one day, one final day. Read in another context. One final fling, one more night, just once more. Come on, Jesus, just once, just once. And do you see the urgency of Jesus's response? No, not once more. Now, now. And burying a parent was, of all the rules and customs in Judaism in the day, it was the preeminent one. No matter how you and your family got along, no matter what else happened, no matter how reverent or irreverent you were, you buried your parent with honor because that is what told the community you were a good person. And so Jesus is ripping away from this fellow the right to be honored in front of his community, which is an interesting one. Because how many times do we really want to do something because our piety will show through and people will pat us on the back for it rather than the motivation of doing what Jesus calls us to do? I shared with folks this morning that, I mean, this can be big things. It can be big things. It could be like, well, I'm going to keep on dating her because how else will she hear about Jesus? <laughs> yeah. The flirt to convert motive. <laughs> or maybe, a, well, you know, I, I know the company I work for is totally corrupt and the products we turn out are crap, but I'm supporting my family. Hmm. Looks like you're doing good, but avoiding the best because the best is going to be harder. I admitted this morning, I, I just, when I got up this morning, I wasn't in the mood to come to church. <laughs> it was going to be too much work. And uh, I answered some very important emails. And um, I, I was working on a project for SCUM. I even cleaned my bathrooms, anything <laughs> to delay. And then, I th- and then I'm coming down here thinking, I am my own sermon illustration. I am doing all these good things and avoiding what God wants me to do. I'm doing good and avoiding the best because the best is likely to be hard. And I would rather do the easy and good that's going to get everybody to notice me and say, oh, what a sparkling clean bathroom you have. Or thank you for answering that email on a Sunday morning. But to, I mean, those are little things, but often we do avoid the best because it's going to be hard. And we put the good in there to make it look like we're, we're doing enough. Oh, Jesus, how much you pack into a saying. Still another fellow said, I will follow you. I will follow you, Lord. But we have a little joke in our house. Oh, oh here comes a big but. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And again, you know, it's not a yes or it's not a no. But you sense it's a real slam. Nonetheless, Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. We had the kids in the service today, so we had to show them a little picture of the plow. And, uh, you know, we, we had this, you know, if you've been to a Christian summer camp, you might have done something like it. 
um, the long butcher block paper and, okay, you draw a straight line all the way to Tyler and you draw a straight line looking at me trying to walk the other way. Well, whose line came out looking like that? The easy little illustration that if you don't keep your eyes on the prize, as the old civil rights song said, if you don't keep your hand to the plow, if you don't hold on, you will be so easily diverted and it will be so easy to settle for less than the best. This idea of you can't even go say goodbye to your family, but Jesus, family is number one. Focus on the family. Come on, haven't you learned that one, Jesus? Yeah. And I honestly think, well, I think it cuts both ways. It was easy to say to parents this morning, If Jesus says he ranks above family, the best thing you can do for your kids is to love Jesus more than them. Oh, because how many, how tempting it is as parents to cave, you know, into, well, my kids have to have this lesson and they have to have braces and they have to go to a good school and they have to have this opportunity. And, and there goes any time or effort in their spiritual development. Well, you're filling it with good things that make you look good to the other parents. But I'm just developing this idea in my mind now, so it might not come out clearly. For those of us who are adults and have parents, it's possible the greatest service we can do the Lord is to fix up those relationships with family. Family doesn't come first, but devotion to the Lord I think does include getting your family as right as possible. (sighs) The best instead of the good. And there's some difficult situations out there with family. And it might not be safe to walk back into that relationship today. But you can't hide behind piety and avoid it altogether. God is after our best, not after something good. And the first blush of enthusiasm and the first blush of devotion to him is nothing unless there is consistency in obedience. Don't let the good get in the way of doing what is best. There's no excused absence for service in the kingdom of God. Um, Circumstances are never so bad that we have the right to stop acting like a Christian for a little bit. And I think that's why, you know, when James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven, God said, no. I mean, I think it was kind of an incidental little slam. But there are other times when the attacks are huge. And the Lord still says, suffering for righteousness is my way, not revenge. Not all of us have been called to any sort of an extreme like some are called. I don't know if any of us are ever going to be told we're not allowed to go to our father's funeral or that we can't say goodbye to our family in the midst of serving Jesus. But there are definitely those who have served the ultimate life. I know it's Memorial Day weekend. I sound like I'm going to make a patriotic speech, but it's not. But um, so a couple, few months ago, 
There was a video clip going around, and churches were requested to all show it on a particular Sunday about the martyrdom that's going on in the Middle East and North Africa. That was the Sunday we canceled the morning service and just didn't work in the evening. Um, we're going to try showing that video now, and it's very possible there will be no sound. It's also, if, if you are sensitive to graphic images, you may want to walk out now. Looks like it's going to work. It is a very dangerous time to be a Christian. Torture, beheadings, destruction. Was the highest of level of persecution of Christians. A church congregation barricaded themselves in from hundreds of riot police. Are enduring attacks for their faith like Along never with the before. Savage kidnappings of Christian schoolgirls in Nigeria by Boko Haram and the burning of Christian images of violence dominate headlines. Christians are being warned to have a choice: convert to Islam, pay a very steep price. Or face death. Chilling new video showing the beheading of 21 Egyptian Christians. Beheadings of 21 Christians. 21 Christian men beheaded by Islamic State. The title of the video is a message signed with blood to the nation of we the cross. The, the sharpest jump in violent uh, attacks against Christians. We need to make the persecuted church an issue of prayer. a God thing because I was assured that it wasn't going to work. Um, I don't know if there's a person in this room or if we know of an individual who will ever be asked to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom. And yet, some of us will pay very, very costly prices in terms of relationships, families, work, dreams, reputation, pleasures, um, some of us are struggling even tonight knowing that there's something that has to start in our lives or end in our lives. And we will have the prayer cave open. And I do urge you to pray with somebody here or you'll leave a prayer request later. Um, you never know when you're going to have to give up the good to get the best. 
you know, when we prayed for our girls growing up and, you know, oh, Lord, use them for your glory. I didn't expect that it would take one of them 5,000 miles away to be a preacher in a foreign country. It's hard. You know, and some of you probably have your own stories about, really, what being a Christian has cost you because life would have been easier. It would have been easier. You would have skated through this life easier without a commitment to Christ. And we struggle in it together. Jesus is resolutely set toward Jerusalem. And he's going to have less and less patience with his disciples. But I also assure you, as, as we go through more chapters of Luke, they catch on, they get better. Tonight's stories are almost embarrassing. And yet, do you see how he doesn't, except for saying, no, you may not destroy my enemies tonight, he leaves the door open. He, make, he doesn't make it super easy. Jesus is not an enabler. He doesn't make it super easy, but it is possible to follow him. And so let me pray for us now. And then as we go into the next worship set, there will be folks in the prayer cave if you want to pray with somebody. Father, even the video was, oh, so old. There's been more mass murders of Christians since then. And I think of their courage. And I think of the families they left behind and the poverty and the difficulty and how, how tentative it must be for their children. Will their children follow Christ or hate Christ because of what happened? And it's not easy for us either. We each have our struggles every day to follow you. Thank you for not being so harsh on us as to call us out on our half-heartedness, but to give us grace that we can get up again tomorrow and you will love us still and your grace will be there for tomorrow's struggles. We thank you for all that your son has done and pray for the courage to follow him. Amen.